0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. Let's today please welcome
1: Julian Smith. How are you today, sir? Hey, thanks for having me, dude. It's great. Having a good day.
0: Awesome, well, we're super excited to have you today because there's a few reasons, but the biggest one is is that of all of the investors that I've gotten the opportunity to chat with, I'm gonna say you've probably raised the most money. So there's gonna be a (laughs) lot to talk about. And I'm pretty excited to jump in and uh, discuss all of this. So the way we like to start our show off is that we want to hear kind of a bit about your background. So if you can talk about some of the past experiences, your startups that you've built, um, even from your New York, New York Times way mm. back, YouTubing mm. it, all these great things that you've been doing. Love to hear a bit of that. And then one thing about you that nobody would know.
1: Oh, man. Well, I'll give you the, what is the thing that nobody would know about? me? I'll get to that. I'll, it, it will come to me. Uh, but I'll give you a sense of my history. Uh, a lot of people in startups come from certain schools or whatever, right? and and that doesn't apply to me. Uh, My father was an executive coach. It's one of the reasons I run a coaching software company today, Practice. And uh, and so I grew up in an environment of uh, you can do whatever you want with your life, because that is kind of a form of what he would tell his clients and Uh, They would be going through a career transition or something like that. And uh, he would bring tools to bear to be able to help that. And so one, one good thing about that is I felt that I could do anything, but the bad thing about it is I didn't feel that I had a path that was set for me. And sometimes me and my fiance talk about how envious we are of people that have just become doctors and they just know they're always going to be doctors because it's just set for them. And I never had that. And so uh, my path to, Let's let's call it tech. is actually really circuitous and weird. It actually doesn't begin with me really starting companies. It begins with me starting a podcast, which is one of the first podcasts that ever existed, and maybe the first of two or something like that Canadian podcast that ever existed, uh, and certainly the first uh, hip hop podcast in the world. Which is a funny thing to say, but that's it's uh, in two thousand four. Uh, there were no podcasts and and I started one. And because uh, I had like a weird kind of distinct, unique voice, I was younger than most people that were podcasting. I was doing a bunch of things. I got picked up by Sirius Satellite Radio. And so I ended up having, uh, th- that was the first time that I ever switched from having a regular kind of office job that had nothing to do with tech like at all to working online. And I was the only person that I knew that worked online like this. And so it was transformative for me, all of a sudden, my peers weren't like people I sat next to in a regular office, but they were other podcasters and other media producers. And I hadn't really learned how to do that. I just have a radio voice is what I get told. And I used to do radio commercials. And so someone uh, agreed. And so that maybe was one angle of how I got there. Um, And then from there, it was social media was just coming in to start to exist. And and my podcast was starting to pay me like a little bit of money. And so we ended up writing about social media and through writing eBooks about social media there, keep in mind, this is 2008, 2007 type of thing. Uh, Someone comes to us, me and a co-author and goes, uh, you guys should write a real book about this. And and I, we're like okay, and th- we think that's a super exciting opportunity because I'm 25, or 27, or something years old at the time, and I'm like I gotta, you know, I just I, I want to do this, and my co-author uh, likewise. We had big audiences, and so in the first week that the book came out, it was called Trust Agents, published in 2009. It was one of the uh, considered by Amazon to be one of the best business books of the year, and it was a New York Times bestseller. And so there's a gigantic you know, crazy transformation from being a dude that worked in some random call center really, to media personality that ended up on Sirius, to New York Times bestselling author and speaker. And so that happens in an arc that's about four years, which is a crazy, crazy arc. Now, I'm running kind of internet businesses like a little bit at this time, I, 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 start a blog and the blog ends up being super popular. It's about self-development and about a bunch of other things. And uh, After about three books, I'm like, maybe I'm done here, not really sure. Uh, But I had an idea to start a business, which ultimately became a business breather that probably most or anybody of of the people that know of the things that I've done, even though I've written a lot of really kind of books that have turned out well, Breather is probably the thing that is the most commonly known by people that uh, I talk to. Breather raised $150 million while I was CEO and raised more after I was no longer CEO and uh, ended up uh, at around 250 employees at the height of it with um, locations in 10 cities and all these things. And it was originally a meeting room business and later it became like kind of a commercial real estate tech business where you could slice up spaces uh, using technology and open them using electronic locks with your phone. And so this business is like, I had never started a venture-backed business before. I didn't know how to raise any money at all. And uh, I had made some cash a little bit in previous internet businesses a little, but this is the first time that I was like dealing with employees and dealing with, you know, a board uh, and dealing with all of these things. And in the crazy, this crazy world, like I was able to get that to the size that I got it to, tens of millions of revenue and so on and so forth. And so after that, I realized I was in the real estate business, which is not a business I intended to be in, right? <laughs> but but a business I ended up as a result in. So we gave that to another CEO, like, meaning we hired a CEO at the, at the board level to be able to operate the business and that went on. And um, and then I started this company practice that I run today and that has been funded to the tune of 10 million bucks by Andreessen Horowitz, Tony Robbins, and a few other people. And that's kind of my trajectory as far as kind of tech goes. And, and oh, uh, something that nobody knows about me. Uh, I would say one of the things that not many people know about me is that I have really loud tinnitus. So I've super really loud ringing in my ears. All the time, people in my life know this. People on the internet typically do not. So it's actually a, a thing that I and you know lots of lots of people deal with, but it's a thing that I've been dealing with for like at least maybe fifteen years or something like that.
0: Well, the entire story is amazing, but I will have to ask this ringing noise that you hear mm-hmm. um does it distract you do you notice it or is it now become something that's just it back becomes there and you're just
1: plowing for okay it becomes okay. background noise not for all not for everybody but for some people it becomes background noise but it's you hear it all the time that's like and you can look this up it's like a well-known thing well thank god it's background noise because <laughs> i would think that having that gnawing noise
0: bouncing around your mind would eventually uh uh, either drive you crazy or you would come up with something to uh, to fix it. So, uh, or somebody's working on that, I'm sure. But uh, Julian, that's that's fantastic understanding. But the biggest thing that I want to dive into, and you've talked about it multiple times, is this money and how all of this kind of unfolded. But before we jump into how the the money thing started, um, I'm a huge fan of the podcasting side, as as you can imagine. And back in the 2005s. Um, I was working with um, a a creative artist in Toronto and we had Mm -hmm. this big discussion on how we wanted to jump in and create this podcast and build all this stuff out. And we had more discussions than action. And because you were this first person to Mm -hmm. kind of put this together, Mm -hmm. what was the driving force behind it? Because this really proves to me that one, you're an entrepreneur and that you kind of stepped into it. You talked about the hip hop side, but what mm-hmm. kind of got you into the space? There was a few notables back in the day um, that were working, obviously, on the YouTube side. Today, they're making millions. They're doing a, a lot of fruitful mm-hmm. things on, the, on the, the web. What kind of steered you into it, and what were the few learnings that you got from this early, early stage uh, before mm-hmm. you got picked up from Sirius?
1: Yeah, so I will say that it really is what taught me about internet marketing more than anything. So as a the first really foray into internet marketing was having to market my own podcast. And I will say that as well, it really taught me about the arc of trends over time. And so when you're in uh, podcasting in 2004, there weren't a lot of us, keep in mind, really, we were like, this is going to kill radio. Like, that's our view. Okay, keep in mind, this is the world of iTunes selling songs for ninety nine cents, which is maybe some people here don't remember, right? And it's the world of same thing, iTunes is the only mechanism for watching movies. is Netflix what is for streaming at the time? I don't remember. but it's a, it's a very different world. And so what it really teaches you is about the arc of change that's true for all of tech. For for a really meaningful arc of change to occur inside of tech, it needs to take like five plus, 10 plus years. That's And now podcasting is the most mainstream thing ever. But we thought that that would happen within a couple of years versus 10, 15. And then the other thing is it really teaches you. Uh, and the reason that I really got into it as I was just like, eh, there's nobody doing this. And I was always interested in just building things and having fun with smart people. And it's still one of the main tenets of what I try to do is I try to build things with smart people I'm excited to work with and things that will entertain or help a lot of people. Like that build, build things with smart
0: people. Uh, it's a, it's a great tagline. Uh, I do agree that as you work through things in life, if you find the right people to work with you on those projects, they can turn into some big things, but look for people that also have their own mindset in this. And they're not just the, the the followers, but they're the leaders in this space as well. And you obviously became a leader right from the, uh, the get-go by jumping into something that nobody was doing, which creates that anomaly and allows you to go in and start to ruffle feathers. And I, I don't think that was a bad dream to say, hey, you know what, let's do something that no one's gonna do. And this is gonna take over radio. It is kind of odd that after all these years that radio still exists the way it does. Um, Interestingly, that it, it's still there, but man, is podcasting really surpassed that in the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic. For sure. So now you kind of jumped into the whole serious thing. And it sounds like you went from being just a guy in Montreal hanging out. And I'm not sure if at the time you were in Montreal hanging out, working on this stuff. And then all of a sudden it skyrockets. And now all of a sudden you kind of become mainstream. You're you're mm-hmm. really hustling it. You're starting to get to understand. Like you said, you're sitting around the table with more executives. And you start to really build out this whole side of things. And what I loved about your background is that you do writing. You work with the New York Times. And what I find about creative people that do writing or they are writers, that they have a really great way of putting a storyline to anything that they work on or Mm. anything that they're about to do. And I think that really elevates your game. And now being in this room with executives and working on the media side, Mm. that also kind of elevates your game. So let's just plow right through it. We get to your your breathing company, uh, Breather. How did this all start and what got you looking for venture capital versus just doing what you did previously, which was building something successful and moving sure. forward?
1: Yeah, I, I I was very interested in I'd been having more and more people around me on the startup side, right? And so I thought that's really interesting. They're building things, but I was super interested, and because I talked about uh, tech in 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 talks that I did because I was a public speaker and because I wrote books about tech. Uh, but I'd never operated a business. I'd always watched it from the outside, and it wasn't really clear that what what it was that really shaped things. But I was noticing that things happen in certain times, and they happen in certain sequences. It's not all really obvious to see a line between the first iPhone with a GPS to Uber. That's not a really clear line, but it is actually one is contingent on the other, right? And so it has to happen in sequence. And so similarly, I was looking at some of the things like this, and I thought it's really interesting that you can, you can open an, an electronic lock with your phone. The first Kickstarters were coming out where you could put a lock on a door and that lock, you could literally just open it using your phone and nothing else. And I was like, that's super interesting. I guess you could do it with your house, but it's much more interesting if you could do it with spaces that aren't yours. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How many? How big could this network be? And I knew about network effects and how to build network effects, and so on, and, and how the first few spaces would be impossible to deal with, and but then over time you deal with dozens, and then hundreds, and and so ultimately that that vision, as unusual and implausible as it felt, was viable by some angels and by some VCs, and so. My vision was crazy. And typically that's kind of like how I think about things. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll think about how the world will change. How meaningful will the change be in the world should something like this happen? Well, that would be crazy if it's this large. And in this case, it turned out to be a real sort of mini transformation inside of commercial real estate, which is actually like really a crazy, crazy industry that is massive. It's like probably top five GDP industries in the world. And so gigantic industries. So that's, that's a little bit how to think about it, is then looking at it and going, wow, this could really happen. And it's interesting because from my time in media and writing, I often thought about the expression storyteller as a joke. Like, that's not a job. You're saying you don't have a job. Like, you think you're a storyteller. What is that? That's not a thing. But actually, when you're a CEO of a company, Absolutely, it's a thing, and it's a thing because the power of a story is the power of being able to exert leadership into an organization, and the power of a story is the ability to exert leadership into people that want to follow you, including capital, right? And so the difference, and actually, I because I run, my father was an exec coach, and I am I coach first time CEOs today, right? A few of them. And so I watch other companies now as well. And I'm, I happen to be doing two or three of them literally simultaneously, like right, right now I'm doing two, like two of my coaching clients have got term sheets on the table right this moment. And so like I build decks with them and they, this is not their superpower, but it is mine to a degree. Right. And so with these people, they're like, I put this shitty deck together and it's like, you are telling a bad version of your story. Another another famous thing is like, oh no, I give them the deck, but then I don't talk about it during the meeting. Well, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, you're either A, it's not the best version of your story. At which point, why isn't the deck the best version of the story? That's sort of like what the objective is. And then B, if it is the best version of their story, then why are you deviating from it? And so you like, this is this is the, cookie, the ability for uh, for storytelling as a skill to come together build a good deck to be able to take that deck and and really convey the story in a super clear way to a bunch of investors is in fact a real job. It's just not a real job for the people who were writing books that I knew of back in the day. That that was true. But but the ability to lead and the ability to get financed and and all of that stuff really does have to do with storytelling in a lot of different ways. And uh, I really do believe that my time in media and in radio and, you know, going all the way back to my time playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid, a kid right? Like all of that is just forms of storytelling that you, that you sort of like flex your muscle at doing time and time and time again so that when you're in front of investors or for that matter, when you're in a podcast, you could actually really kind of clearly convey ideas ideally and be able to transmit emotion, which is super powerful.
0: Like that, the idea of being able to create a storyline that can get everybody interested in buying into what you're doing comes from that initial opportunity that you've created. And some of the things that you're talking about is that these leaders sometimes lack maybe focus. And if they're going to pitch something, they're talking all over the place, except for what they should be focused on, which is deliverables, cut back the fluff and get right to the point so that everybody Mm -hmm. in the room understands exactly where they're trying to achieve and where they're trying to go. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening, maybe nerves, whatever it is, they end up talking in circles and it ends up getting them really far off Mm -hmm. track. And then they wonder why maybe they have an issue closing rounds. So Mm -hmm. now taking your way of observing this, which I think is phenomenal and I've, Never really heard too many entrepreneurs that have really defined how you focused on this. Mm-hmm. But when you, you were putting together the idea around the business, mm-hmm. you talked about scaling. You talked about how this is going to change the world. Yeah. And everybody talks about this. They always talk about, oh, my business is going to change the world. But I don't mm-hmm. really think that they analyzed, is this really going to have an impact? And you mentioned it made an impact on a $4 billion industry. So you really did understand it. You did look at this and say, if I have an application that's going to unlock doors and open up things in other spaces, this industry is this large. Where is this going to be in five, 10 years? Wow. This is something that could be a real opportunity that nobody is doing. Now, I think that the reason why that you had this conviction when you talked about it now, 10 years later, is mm-hmm. that it actually was thought about while you were in this process versus just putting it into a pitch deck and acting like, uh, oh, this mm-hmm. industry is $3 trillion. You know, we're going to take 0.1%. You know, this is how we're going to win. And everybody's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, go get them, yeah. tiger. Mm-hmm. So it, it really felt like you actually really understood what you were trying to achieve using innovation and moving that forward. So how do you, in your coaching today, mm-hmm. get and ground founders so that they actually can understand what the focus really is? Yeah. and knowing where they're going to be it's like gretzky saying i'm not on the ice going i'm going to score this goal i'm mm-hmm. going to be in the right spot when the puck goes there so that i can pick up the puck and go put it in the net and people right. are just like, no way you can foresee this and you're like mm-hmm. no when you're this good you can mm-hmm. foresee the next move you have to be in focus to see that move how do you coach people to be able to think this? Because this is pretty powerful.
1: Yeah, so it, it's an it's an age it's an age long uh, um, I guess skill that I, I happen to be reading a book about rhetoric right now. Right, rhetoric, which was I guess to a degree like invented in ancient Greece and has been developed as a skill since then. And they divide it into three things. And so I would say that a good deck, similarly. Is divided into three things, and they they're in Greek, in ancient Greece <laughs> Greek I guess they're referred to as logos, pathos, and ethos. And so, uh, pathos is the one that's most commonly known. That is the conveying of emotion, and so it is I think well known. You know, in public speaking, it's true. I mean, it's true in churches. It's true everywhere. The most powerful emotion in the room ends up being the emotion that is transmitted to all the participants in the room. And so if I feel it and I convey it strongly enough, I will transmit that emotion to the other person and they'll begin to feel it. And that's true whether it's negative or positive or whatever, right? Lack of confidence will transmit lack of confidence, et cetera. And so in the other two, which is ethos and logos, logos is about getting people to saying your actual argument, which is our growth rate is X, the the industry is why, and we will be able to do this in this time. And then ethos is the conveying of we are good and we know what we're doing. And so if I could transmit those into different types of decks, they might vaguely map onto different types of pitches. And that would be a team pitch where it's like these people are geniuses and only they can do this. Oh my God, we have to fund these people. It would be a traction deck, which is, oh, my God, the numbers in this business are really good. It would be a deck that is a product deck. This is the best product. And when it goes out, it'll be amazing. Or it will be a market deck. And often when people are building decks, they do not actually say one of these stories coherently. They divide what they're saying among all of these different things. And so I'll give an example. Uh, Because solopreneurship is a gigantic industry in the United States already and is growing by insane amounts, it's got a CAGR of 15% per year currently. And by 2026, 2027, there should be about 90 million people that are solopreneurs, at least on a side hustle level. Not talking about Uber drivers, but more like coaches and freelancers and so on in the United States. So it's a gigantic industry. So in our pitch for practice, we talk about how it's a gigantic industry and how important that is. Then we talk about, we have raised $150 million before in previous businesses, and we've executed businesses at scale. With these departments, these departments, these departments, we know how to do these things. So that's the team part of the deck. But often, If a few of them are weaker than others, people don't really understand that they just need to tell like one story well, which is like, we're amazing. Take a look at this stuff, we know it. Nobody else can do this. That's if that's the strongest one or if the market is super strong, then work on the market. But this is a set of examples of how you tell stories using a framework to convey what you are doing in the strongest possible manner. And I think that is often considered a uh, you know like an afterthought, a deck when it's properly worked on should be should be refined like 20, 25, 30 times, not like two times, right? And I, I believe it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Delian on Twitter, who now runs a company Varda and he's a founder, a principal for Founders Fund, uh, talked about how the deck is the difference for his space company, space manufacturing company that he started a few years ago. Uh, And it's the difference between like a $5 million raise and a $50 million raise. If you could really tell the story well, that's how powerful a good deck and a good story are.
0: Absolutely brilliant. And what I I really enjoy the fact that you've broken this down from Legos, Idos, and Pathos. I think those are brilliant ways to kind of summarize uh, how you can approach a different positioning and getting people more interested. But that's also learning who your audience is. And I think, again, a lot of times we don't always go into a pitch thinking this. We think, oh, I'm just going to load up my deck and I'm going to go out there and pitch everybody again. Not knowing that you're pitching a completely different audience today or you're in front of investors or you're in front of your parents or you're in front of granny, whatever the difference is, you kind of have to start to look at everything is specific to the audience you're going after. And I, I think you what really resonated with me is that I love the idea of we are the only team that can accomplish this. Mm -hmm. we have built this team. Everybody, every investor that we interview, everybody always goes around this. It's about the team. Well, Mm -hmm. when you're early on, there's not much of a team there, but if you can put together this really compelling argument that Mm -hmm. these are the people that have this mindset, they're going to crush this. I think that can change the entire way that you raise funds. This person does this this person does this and there's nobody better out in the market. I try to get you to find someone that will be better. And I think that that just tweaks your mind to think, wow, there's something here that I didn't think of or the product side, same thing. Like when you guys were putting this product together, there was that tweak of nobody else is building this type of product. And this product has the potential, the kegger, which is just for the rest of the audience understanding. Uh, compounded annual growth rate. So there is a lot of meaning into the numbers. And I think a lot of founders really need to take this from what you're saying, learn a bit more about the numbers and be able to really exploit those, those details when they are talking into a pitch, because again, that's, what's going to get the investor on the other end, a little more excited and Mm -hmm. a little bit further into, into what you're doing. And I think one of the things I saw in one of your other podcasts was it's fall in love with the first meeting, and then figure out how <laughs> to get the person to stay in love with you after that. And this really does summarize that quite well because yeah. you are working on this amazing pitch. It was one of the videos where you were breaking down your tweets. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was awesome. Thank you, thank you. Uh, really, I really enjoyed that you were breaking it down. I'm like, this is good. I wouldn't have known. I love this. Everybody should do this. So yeah.
1: brilliant, brilliant. It's uh, actually- Before I'll, I'll I jump in- Yeah, yeah go, yeah, go ahead. Go go ahead. ahead. Hmm. Yeah the, uh, the the thing with the with this particular thing that' you're, that you're mentioning, just to give you a sense, it was told to me by a GP at a venture capital fund that I work with and he said he was there there are in venture capital funds as I think a lot of people know anyway, there's usually one one man or woman, one, one person who is the major fundraiser at venture capital funds. It's not like when they're out raising 400 million or 500 million dollar funds, It's not everybody equally who's performing that skill. There's typically one, maybe two people. And so I'm talking in this case to this exact person who raises the majority of these venture capital funds, again, $500 million or whatever funds. And that's what he said. His advice was, I'll give you another thing that he said, every 24 hours, they do not respond to you in, the likelihood of a deal cuts in half. So the first day, if they respond, that's 100%. Second day, 50%. Third day, 25%, fourth day, 12%. And so he has these ways because when you've raised enough money, you just know these patterns a little bit. But this pattern of fall in love, but then make sure you don't fall out of love is an incredible one because it really conveys the importance of the first meeting and trying to get your story super
0: tight. And I think from the second and third meeting, what really resonated with me there is that you're working on a relationship And that relationship comes with two things. You're looking for money and they're looking for an output. So you Hmm. both kind of have to mutually continually agree upon and move those forward in order for the success to happen. And if one of those becomes disconnected or cheapened or reduced, then either someone decides to walk away or they become disgruntled. And if they've already made the investment, then it becomes even more odd that you don't have that same connection with that person who is now, separated from that conversation. And that Mm -hmm. can be also very impactful. So I think a lot of relationship building starts from day one, from that initial pitch, and then you continue to work it. And hopefully it will gain ground and build up, as you said, instead of building down. And every time they're not talking to you, you're losing ground, but hopefully you're able to keep keeping that person interested, just like in a relationship. So to take a step a little bit to the side here, I really do mm-hmm. want to learn a little bit more about your investment strategies and how sure. you approach this raise. Because I think for the audience, they're you know they're really eager. They're probably young into their startup phase. They maybe have raised their first family and friends uh, family family and friends rounds, and now they're working on that next one. And like you said, there's there's a lot of meaning that comes into that first pitch, and then carrying that relationship or that love all the way through every time you meet with that vendor, but you've done it quite successfully in multiple rounds. Is there a couple of tips that you could share on how you approach the market to go after investors while running your company? Because yeah. that's obviously got to be pretty tough to do. And then maintaining that cycle, being able to keep investing and when do I go after money? I, you know, There's a million questions that we can tailor off of this, but I think to start, it's what are those few things that allowed you the success of raising your first round and continuing to build your company while raising?
1: Yeah, it is interesting you bring up this idea of how do you run the company at the same time. I've always had the good fortune to work with really good co founders and really good, like, kind of first teams of employees. And so sometimes a co founder and sometimes with a team of employees, uh, the initial team, I have always been kind of blessed that. When I look at them and I say, I'm out. I'm going out to, out to raise uh, funding, see ya, <laughs> uh, and you're not going to see them for like a while. So you're going to keep up with regards to the numbers, let's say, on a set of dashboards or with some calls, one-on-ones or something. But by and large, the answer is, is I have uh, had formidable or strong enough founder and early team relationships that I was able to be like, see ya. And and I think that that is a part of the the success that you that uh, it, what what is needed for success because uh, you have to be able to focus completely on the fundraisers to succeed. You should never do it ideally uh, with under six months of runway uh, because fast deals literally take days. Like I just watched a couple of them happen over here. And when they take days, that's always like, wow, great. But even then it takes days. We're not talking about five days. We're talking about 20 days as VC funds, like kind of like line up appropriately. But on the long side, fundraising takes forever and is endless. Now, all of this is made worse if your decks are bad, if you're not lined up, if you're not appropriately networked and so on. But those are sort of like the structures of what you need to set up the right frame for yourself to succeed. You get your team to manage the business as much as possible. Keep in mind as a CEO, I I understand during a friends and family stage, it's a bit harder, but as CEO, you should never be doing a job yourself. Like that's failing a little bit as CEO. Now, if you have no money, I get it. You have to do a set of jobs, customer service, important things that I did when I early on in both my companies, I marketing things I did early on in both my companies product and so on. But ideally during a fundraising, you're like, you have to keep this going, here it is, right? And they have a playbook for doing so. And then in addition to having six months, in addition to having a good deck, ideally with people that have fundraised before that are able to guide you as to what a good deck is, then you have to be networked enough before that ideally it isn't your first call with people. Now, your ideal situation, pe- people like to say this different ways, by the way, v- investors tend to say, "Oh, I invest in a lot in lines, not dots. What they mean is, is in, in a relationship in which there are multiple touch points so that they can pre- see progress over time. I mean, they say that, but in reality, when a hot deal or an exciting thing comes across their lap, it's not like they're not going to pay attention to it if it's not the first meet- if it's the first meeting. So the reality is is ideally, you have not. Given numbers in between fundraises, you have. That's my point of view. You've mentioned your numbers in the fundraising prior to this, and now you're talking about the progress that you've made in the eighteen months since that time. And in between those eighteen months, your head's down and you're working. Ideally, from me, it, I have always like taken little calls with funds a little bit here and there, and met angels and all these other things in between financings. And the reason that I do that is because I'd like the relationship to be there, but I try to control the narrative by not being like, yeah, here's our old deck with all our old numbers. Yeah, here's our numbers today. Like, and trying to, I I try to tell the story in a certain way at a certain time. And then the other thing is when I am networked enough and I have a spreadsheet that I have that includes, you know, for example, name of, name of fund, name of partner, uh, how I prioritize them, how hot the last meeting was from an A to an F. Uh, you know, how I got to meet them, what their fund is interested in, a big spreadsheet. And my, I happen to be looked look at my spreadsheet like last week. It's got 250 names inside of it right now. So that's the level of contacts you were ideally looking for. And actually, I could probably find more if I wanted to. But it gives you a sense, like, that's a really good set to base your thing off of. And then your job at that point is to run all those conversations in parallel in what I would call, and in venture capital, they tend to call a process. And what a process means is you're having all your conversations at the same time, so that they exert pressure on each other. And the reason for that is, it's, I think it's pretty obvious, but there's the capital is actually rival to one another. Like a someone who I'm coaching today is raising about a twenty-five million dollar round, and so for them they can't take two 10 million dollar checks because they've got too much pro rata so that they whoever is putting in the 10 million dollars the other person can't put it in it's just not possible and so that rivalry that exists inside of a process means that venture funds will in I- ideal situations, they will feel afraid that they can't put the money in, which means that it will cause them to move faster and cause them to arrive at a decision at a more rapid rate. The natural state of a VC fund is, I'm going to wait for more data. That's always the natural state of a VC fund. It's not you, it's literally their whole industry. And so, Your job is to minimize the amount of time that they have, and the way that you do that is by honestly having other options right? And so that gives you a sense as to how I think about a fundraising. And then you go out and you see what market ends up being, which means you see what the appetite for your deal is. So if you're an early company you're trying to go in out and raising 50 million dollars and you just started, you better have the best team in the world, the best best market in the world and the best timing in the world, right? And so you look out and and a deal can go from a good example is the one that I just mentioned. Where the last the last fund fundraising for this company that I happen to be coaching the CEO of was a ten million dollar fundraising six months ago, and so in that time, the appetite for that company has gone from a ten million dollar deal at X valuation to a twenty five million dollar deal at Y valuation in six months, and so when things are managed properly, you can see how the outcome all these people end up wanting to be in, but then the opposite happens obviously, if there's less and less appetite for it, now it's like you have to be really relentless about your process and keep searching and keep having conversations until you find a, someone to bite. And I've been in both situations. like that. So while you're working
0: through this seed, series A, series B, and you were building up your company and making these types of raises and working with your teams to do this, it sounds like you've really built out a, a great process, a great focus, that it allowed you to keep bouncing in and out of this raise mode while strategizing and helping your team grow, then jump back into the raise. Is there anything that you would say, don't do these two things when you're raising funds, do these two things in order to compensate for these other two, because this is what's going to help you win. And uh, yeah. right now mm-hmm. it sounds like everything is focused. Like I love mm-hmm. how dedicated yeah. and focused you are to this. Right. It sounds like mm-hmm. if there's anything I'm going to say, it's focus everywhere. Is just, if you're raising funds, focus like you wouldn't believe mm-hmm. you'll raise them. And then here's two other great scenarios that yeah. you need to think about.
1: So I will say that one of the great dangers of fundraising is inconsistency in the numbers. And so one of the reasons that COVID obliterated a lot of financings during the early days is because people were like, I don't know what the future looks like. And so giving predictability to the business, I actually learned this from the the COO, now the president of Shopify, Harley Finkelstein. He said, we don't try to 3x every year. We always 2x every year. 2x, not 3x. And that is to bake in a certain predictability into the business so that every year at this scale which is huge amounts of gmv and a huge amounts of revenue they're still able to consistently 2x and so that consistency creates a trust in the team and the product and all these other things and so that's one of the things that is certainly very critical it's like do not miss numbers right i know it's kind of obvious but it's like don't miss numbers the second, I would say, is uh, try to fundraise during a time of the year where your numbers are actually excellent, if you can. So some people see the the, the time where it goes from September to December, because September to December means uh, going back to school, and then it means Christmas, and then, it, you know, and Black Friday. So all these numbers tend to blow out of proportion, right? And so the result of that is, oh, my God, this business is super exciting, for example, right? And so... It's an example of like how to make sure that the numbers are going in the right direction mm-hmm. as what you're doing uh, is in process. And in terms of don't uh, do what you're doing, I would say don't don't do these things. Certainly, one of them would be if someone's not interested, or they're in they're an in between yes or no, which means they're probably a no like don't don't like randomly keep following up with them. What you are looking for, the, the, the magic of fundraising is actually that you just need one yes. Yeah. You have one lead and that one lead can lead your deal and that's all that you really need to drive towards. So wasting time on maybes and no's is actually incredibly useless. And, and I will say it's actually worse than useless because uh, the venture capital industry is really small. Especially inside of Silicon Valley in New York, everybody knows one another, and everybody knows when a deal has been passed around a bunch of times, and been like, "Yeah, they've been fundraising for a while. It's kind of not going anywhere," because everybody knows. And this is true except when a deal is hot, at which point nobody knows because nobody wants to talk about it. They just want to keep it to themselves, right? But that's 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 out of the ordinary. <laughs> and so, definitely, to make sure to stick with the yeses is important. And then I would say to you you must absolutely stick to a consistent regular sequence. It's It really should be treated like a CRM. And a CRM is typically handled, really managed like for sales, right? The objective is to produce sales. And similarly, here you are, do not see it as like they're giving me money, really see it as I am selling a portion of the business and so your process should be handled like a sales process. Often, the CEOs that are good at sales out there are selling to customers. First of all, their numbers are better because they can sell to customers. But second of all, they also tend to be good at fundraising. When I've been on boards or I've coached people or what have you, it's always the people who are good on the sales side who are good on the fundraising side. And so, Ultimately, that's really what this is about: is being becoming good at sales and not ignoring that as a skill set, not ignoring go-to-market as a skill set. Julian, those four points
0: are gold. So I'm hitting the red button, the green button, and the screens are lighting up. But that's fantastic. Uh, totally enjoyed that. I, I love the the breakdown of the numbers. I think that that speaks so highly to. Uh, so many times we see this where. The investors are sitting there trying to calculate the numbers off the screen and the founder doesn't know where the numbers came from. He's trying to make up a reason for why that this is the right number versus why he produced the wrong numbers and so on and so forth. So I think that those really make a big difference, especially when you're fundraising. And of course, the things that you say, don't chase a dud, learn what a dud is. I'm paraphrasing for you on a dud, but really it comes down to people that are interested. So don't chase when you don't need to look for the yes. And I love that when you find that right sequence, process it out, be clean about everything, data, CRM, close the deal, figure out that process. It sounds like everybody needs to get a Julian in their life to kind of help coach them through this process because the process is pretty daunting. And I love it. So you've done a a, a fantastic job on lining that up. So Julian, we really appreciate that. So now we're going to kind of transition into one of the things that we like to learn about. And I'm sure you've got a million stories because you have not only write them, but you're part of this mix every day through the journey and through your investment journey. Has there come across an entrepreneur, she or he that really blew your mind that you Kind of wanted to build a case study around it because you were just blown away on how amazing these people were, on how they were able to turn their business into something completely successful. But the underlying piece is it really tells you or shows us what it's
1: like to be an entrepreneur. Anything that resonates? The qualities that the qualities that they are about are actually the qualities of learning incredibly fast. So some people that I because I coach people that are in YC, I coach people outside of YC. And so really the qualities that are most valuable are the qualities of people that will learn incredibly quickly. And that means that they're reading a lot. It means they're absorbing a lot of information on Twitter. It means when you tell them something, you only have to tell them one time and they're like, okay, got it. And and they just become good at improving themselves because the job, it's interesting. Like I was talking to the coach, Mark, why God, his name is escaping me. That's not good. But one of the coaches... That I've interviewed at practice, where the on for the show that we do, who used to be the early CFO at Shopify, as a matter of fact, because these are Canadians, there's a lot of kind of Shopify alumni, and he was like he had talked about Toby Lutke, who's the CEO over there. He said my job is to is to grow faster than than the company grows, and so if a company is growing really fast, the CEO needs to grow faster than that. Otherwise, the CEO is no longer good at the job, and they will need to be replaced, right? And so your job. Effectively is not only to run the business to a degree of scalability, so that it kind of runs and it's able to scale effectively without you. And by that, I mean without you operating that much in the business. But then, on top of that, to increase your learning curve, and this is where I will say actually that coaching, executive CEO coaching specifically, I'm obviously biased. I run a coaching software company. I am one, although I have no room for more clients. But out there, there are executives. Like I was just speaking yesterday to the ex-CEO of Etsy, who took it public. His name is Chad Dickerson, who is an exec coach now for CEOs. And so what happens is is that people who have never done the job before, uh, they do not know what they don't know. And they have to execute at such a rapid rate that it is impossible for them to be learning it all by themselves. As one of the secrets of Silicon Valley is that there's a ton of coaches out there uh, still not enough because everybody is 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 really booked up, but enough uh, of them that basically everyone is well supported, especially at the high end. And they just don't really tell you that, so you assume oh, Jack Dorsey or like whatever, Steve Jobs or whatever. All it's like this unique genius. But yeah, but actually, they these people have coaches and they're they're surrounding themselves with good advisors at all times. And so, to for sure that never mind a single individual, but the but the quality is the quality to learn. Now, often that, that comes with being humble, being, but well, let's say humble enough to learn, but arrogant enough to run a process and be confident you can change the world, right? Because you need both. And, but really humble enough to be able to take other people's advice and at least listen to it. And then to iterate as rapidly as possible on that advice to become like the best version of yourself. It's incredibly challenging to do, but it is, it is the thing I have seen that is, taken founders with no experience at all, and turned them into like, really effective CEOs over time. Love it.
0: Uh, This is pure gold. Uh, It's interesting being that um, uh, a Montreal native, uh, one of the podcasts we did a while back was uh, um, Michel Lozo, and Mm he's an investor, but he's also a coach. And what I loved about what you're sharing is that in the coaching world, there are so many great nuggets of advice that you can learn from a coach that can really propel you as an individual, you as a business forward 10 times faster than the world's uh, markets of learning than Mm. anywhere else you can be. And I highly recommend getting a coach mentor, but somebody that's really focused on you. And like you said, you've you've got a couple of clients and that's all you've got room for. And I can totally understand that because when you're putting the time and effort into helping coach and guide, There are so many things like I I don't even have any room left on my page to write any more notes because it's so (laughs) so many great nuggets of insight that come out of being able to work with somebody that Mm -hmm. takes this holistic view around you and your business. that can help propel that and see where these little tiny changes that can be made that can really
1: make a big difference in the overall aspect of your business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's right. Uh, It's it's interesting that you note that. Because once you know something, it's normal to you, right? Like you don't, you're no longer impressed. But to be able to transmit that learning as rapidly as possible to a set of people who are ready because they have to execute, because they have to live, you know, uh, that is, that's a thing that uh, it's one of the reasons we work with coaches. And we like to think about practice as being uh, people who help helpers, because we enable their ability to run their own thing and focus on helping others. Uh, and that is one of the reasons that we do what we do, because we really believe that out there, there's people that can help others learn and help others get better and, and be better people and, and operate their businesses better. Brilliant. Brilliant. Very well, sir. Well, we're going to transition now. We're getting close to the end.
0: And I know I know, we don't want to. We've got lots of time left. We should just keep talking because, man, we could talk for hours on, on all this great material that you're providing us with. But we're going to transition now into the rapid fire questions. And mm-hmm. the way this works is you pick one or the other. If you're ready, we'll jump right in. Business first. I am ready. All right. I love
1: it. Okay. Mm-hmm. From an investment angle, founder or co-founder? Founder or co-founder. What do you even mean? I don't even know what that means. That's like if a, you're gonna invest would you invest in just a founder or a co-founder you're oh, i would invest oh, i unicorn. would invest in repeat in 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 several founders at once but with a but with a critical ceo main guy or a girl okay uh are you looking for a unicorn or a four year ten x exit i'm looking for a unicorn do you prefer tech or cpg i prefer tech by a lot i think cpg is uh is a bad idea. Okay. NFTs or Web 3.0? I mean the two are the two are related, but I would say that uh, Web3 broadly is probably more interesting than NFTs and in terms of the next like few years, probably. AI or blockchain? Uh, blockchain. First time founder or a second third time founder? It's always a second or third time founder. That's the that's the, the unfortunate trap, is you, in order to be a second-time founder, you have to be a first-time founder at some point. Are you more comfortable being first money in or series A investor? I'm okay being uh, in a very early round, uh, but I'm also kind of stage agnostic and it has to do with uh, traction and team more than anything. And I will say a lot of it has to do with the network I receive it from. I'm very highly networked as an angel and not as much as others, but still pretty networked. And a lot of it is like who I receive it from. Okay. Do you rather come in as an angel or a VC? I don't run a fund. I, I run and only invest my personal money. I learned that from Jerry Newman, who's a well-known angel. And, uh, and I only invest money that's, that's I've made my, myself.
0: Perfect. Uh, do you
1: prefer a board seat or observer seat? Uh, for my own companies i prefer an observer seat and for a as an angel i if i if i need either one then the company is in trouble so i, I prefer neither okay uh, do you have any preferred terms safe or a convertible note which one do you uh, prefer I, so long as the lead if it's all safes then i don't care but if the so long as the lead is a good lead then i don't really care what the terms are okay uh, will you lead or follow around I will always follow and around just because I don't have the check size to be able to delete. Okay. Uh, do you prefer equity or interest payments? I have no interest in interest payments of any kind. I'm only interested in equity. Okay, love it. Favorite part of investing? I guess more open. Uh, it, oh, I think open. it has to do with I, I love I love watching people change the world. I love being a tiny part of that, and I love receiving investor updates. I love watching. The ride happen. It's re- and to see it as a coach is super exciting too, and so uh, I just I just love watching the journey from the outside. It's really compelling knowing what because sometimes I've been through it what they are going through.
0: That's a, a great uh, great insight on the company, and I do enjoy receiving the same emails. These so you get excited for how well they're doing or the changes that they've made. That's Number nice. of companies you invest in per year maybe five. Okay, that's perfect. Above normal, above average, which is brilliant.
1: Uh, uh, above average, I'm not sure. Yeah, the average angel investor uh,
0: is anywhere between one to two uh, companies per year. So you're, uh Yeah. You're certainly uh, uh, doing a very uh, notable investment which is fantastic. We need a lot more angel investors like yourself. Uh, any preferred terms? You, you did mention that it's not something that you worry too much if there's a strong lead, but do you have any preferred uh paper that you like to uh, to work off of or it, it's really up to the founders?
1: Uh it's up to the founders and typically um uh, typically we're working on tr- traditional uh venture capital association deals, right? Or you're working on uh traditional SAFE notes, which are Sort of designed by YC. So it, it doesn't really matter. All that is standardized. Okay. Any specific verticals you focus on? I focus uh these days I've happened to focus a fair amount on SaaS businesses. It's not always been true. I uh, I have some crazy, but what I what I will say is this consistency, and it just speaks to what I just said a moment ago. I've I've invested in some crazy, super fast growing deals, but they're so fast. That they're almost dangerously fast. And so it's almost like slower, but more consistent and credible and repeatable is better than like B2C businesses that are going in, that are going incredibly, getting incredibly uh, big, incredibly fast, but for whom there's no consistency.
0: Okay. Two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out for you to want to take interest.
1: Uh, I mean, the team is most, um, team. Uh, I think. The answer—it's the same as you know. I heard someone on your podcast say the same thing, which is, is like ultimately you want all three, which is team, the traction, and the market. That's what you really want. If I could only choose two, I damn, I would have to choose team and and traction probably.
0: i we're gonna bounce into the personal questions.
1: Go for all me. right, here we go. Book or movie? Movie, but I did write some books, and I do like to read them. I love it. Superman or Batman? Definitely Batman. Restaurant or picnic? (laughs) Restaurant, yeah, absolutely. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Uh, Bezos. Mountain or beach? Uh, Actually, in Tofino, one of the places I have, and I have a place then, I have access to both, which is magic, right? But if I had to choose one, I would choose a beach, but I wouldn't choose like Miami Beach, but more like California Beach. Love it. Bike or run? I I actually dislike both, and if I had to choose one, <laughs> uh, I would choose uh, probably running. Okay. Big Mac or chicken McNuggets? I uh, actually uh, the chicken at McDonald's is underappreciated, and and is my personal choice. The McChicken is my real choice. Okay. Trophy or money? Wait. What was the other option money trophy or money i would today i would choose money okay beer or wine beer camera or mobile phone mobile phone king or rich uh ri- rich but uh, but at the extreme ends you get both but if i have a choice i uh definitely rich over king king is 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 awful sometimes. True. Concert or amusement park? What? <laughs> concert, <laughs> going to a concert or amusement park? I'll choose the amusement park. All right. <laughs> question, yeah. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Fortune cookie. Ted talk or book reading? Often the Ted talk is the condensed version of the book, which is too long. So in most cases, TED Talk. But in the right cases, you want the book because it actually contains the information that's really good. The real nuggets. A lot of books. A lot of books are just TED Talks that have been expanded to look wide enough on the shelf. Well said. Most famous person that pops into your mind now? I mean, you just mentioned Oprah and Bezos. But aside from that, uh, I would say Jack Dorsey is the person that comes to mind. Okay. First brand that pops into your mind? Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is D Squared, but that's a brand that I hate.
0: All right. I would say 90% of people ask this question, pick Apple. Favorite
1: movie and what character would you play in the movie? Uh, favorite movie of all time? I, right now, I, I just saw Dune in theaters and I think it's a masterpiece. So I'd choose Paul Atreides and I would choose Dune. So dying to see that movie. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay, perfect. Uh, favorite sports team? Uh, the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, they do rock. Uh, all right. Favorite book? Uh, Man's Search for Meaning is one of the books that had the biggest impact on me. Um, I wrote, uh, it's not my favorite book, but it's my favorite book of mine, is a book that I wrote called Flinch, which you can look up and is free. Uh, and um, I don't know, I, I really like a lot of books. It's hard, for, really hard for me to choose. I've read a lot of books, but those are good choices. Those are perfect, those are great. Uh, okay, what is the meaning of success to you? To be able to live the life that you wanna leave with as little restraints as possible. Brilliant, very well said. What is your superpower? <laughs> Man, I uh, I ha- I the, the real superpower that I have is I, I know how to talk to people. That's it. That expands to a lot of different adjacent skill sets. And for a long time, I really believed that I was special in a lot of in different ways than that. Like, oh, i can good at telling the future, no, no, no. But in reality, the number one skill that I have is I know how to talk to people and I know how to convince them.
0: Love it. Well, I think, taking all of this well-rounded entrepreneurial experience, investor experience, and all the things you've done on podcasting, YouTubing, writing, you're very well-rounded. And I would say that in that writing aspect, it's allowed you to 100% be very understanding, have a strong empathy, but being able to work with others and help bring out the best in them. So I can totally understand how that would be one of your strong suits and getting people to move forward in the right direction. I think it's brilliant. So Julian, we're going to thank you for joining us. There is so much material here. I'm not even sure you can see it, but uh, (laughs) I've never written so much in my life. It was probably, it could have been kept going or you would have had a million tap taps on the keyboard. But again, Mm. Julian, uh, very, 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 thank you for, all of the insights you shared today. It was super impressive, uh, really helpful. I think a lot of people are gonna learn from this. Uh, And and I just wanted to um, turn over the last segment to you. And the way that we like to end our show is that we like to give you the last word. So anything that you wanna share to founders, investors, and uh, anybody in this ecosystem globally, uh, we turn it over to you to share. And please uh, share with us also how you can be reached but again, thank
1: you very much for all your time today. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Julian, which is spelled J-U-L-I-E-N the French way. Uh, my company Practice, which is a practice that do. Uh, my advice to founders is uh, have a combination of passion because you need to work on it for a long time with marketability, which is the ability for it to actually succeed. Not one and not the other. With one, you'll go on and achieve nothing. With the other, You'll achieve everything, but you won't give a shit about it. And so, the only the combination works well. Uh, and I guess I will leave it at that. Julian, thank you again. Thanks for having
0: me. Okay. Well, this was uh, amazing. The spending the time with Julian and being able to to deep dive into so many great pieces, and you know, being that he's a coach uh, today and building a practice around that, it, it's been phenomenal to have him share. Uh, You know, I I love the things that you got to look for when you're raising funds. He's already raised over 150 million and some of the great nuggets there that are you know, don't miss the numbers. Don't mess up the numbers when you're writing those down. They're pretty important. Um, you know, understand your Kager. But I think what I really loved about the fundraising side too, is that if you're raising funds, raise funds when you're on your upside. So we usually have big months in your entrepreneurial experience. So if, you know, January to March is your low months, then that's when you should be uh, working really hard to get aligned so that as your numbers start to build, you get out in front of everybody. So it, you're running that high, uh, high volume. And I think that's really going to bring a lot of value back to you and your business, especially when you're, uh, when you're raising. And um, you know, a couple other things that, you know, don't chase the no's, chase the S's. And if you don't know which one it is, put it in the middle and do a drip, small reach out, but focus on the people that are really interested in what you're doing and uh, build a process around it. Everything is about focus and process and if you can do that and commercialize how you raise funds or how you're building your business, it's going to bring you a lot of uh, a lot of extra traction. We talked about uh, ethos, pathos and logos and tying those three elements into, you know, your empathy, um, how good you are, the team's how great the team is and putting together that fantastic Um, suited deck for your audience. Again, these things are all powerful and make a big deal when you're raising funds and building your company. Uh, Julie, again, thank you very much for for sharing all these insights. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can always check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja.